Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and the new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Dr. Mara Kodakiewicz holds the Kosciuszko Chair in Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics, where he also serves as a professor of history and teaches courses on geography and strategy, contemporary politics and diplomacy, Russian politics and foreign policy, and mass murder prevention in failed and failing states. He is the author of, the, of Intermarium, The Land Between the Black and Baltic Seas, and numerous other books and articles. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and has previously taught at the University of Virginia and Loyola Marymount University. Welcome, Dr. Hodakiewicz. Thank you very much for this kind introduction. Uh, I also had the Center for Intermarium Studies here at IWP, hence my fascination with the intermarium, the lands between the Black and Baltic Seas. Thank you for tuning in and uh, watching us. It's business as usual here at IWP. This will be the second installment of my musings on the First World War and its aftermath in the Intermarium. And today we'll talk about nationalisms, traditional and modern nationalisms uh, in the Intermarium. Even though, even though there is a precedence of nationalism dating back to antiquity, the ideology of nationalism generally is thought to have originated in the revolution in France. The reflex of human kindness towards those who have been harmed is generally considered to have derived from Christianity first and foremost. In some ways, this attitude could be discerned and applied to international relations. And so the traces of sympathy of the great powers in relations to the suffering small nations occurred and surfaced in particular during the wave of romanticism in the 19th century. Very often this had to do with ideological preferences and cold geopolitical calculations, in particular the so-called balance of power um, concept. Sometimes, however, this was simply a reflection of uh, a Christian uh, reflex, or to put it in a secular way, uh, a humanitarian or, or altruistic predilections of uh, some leaders and other people. The British, for instance, supported the Greeks against the Turks and the Russians supported the Serbs and the Bulgarians. The French and the Americans favored the Poles against all partitioning powers. And I am not referring here to merely and solely to the activities of um, governments, because governments usually limited themselves to beautiful gestures, even though there were a few exceptions. Um, in particular, diplomatic interventions rather than armed interventions. But I'm referring here also to the public opinion, which emerged on an increasingly prevalent scale in the 19th century. 
And public opinion was shaped by the ubiquity of the media, of, of the press, of the mass press. In particular, in the so-called progressive circles, there emerged opinions and even organizations which were geared to support nationalisms of the so-called small people or little people. As far as Poland is concerned, according to Marx and Engels, who, uh, uh, who uh, loved the Poles because of their revolutionary potential uh, in destroying the old order, Poland, according to this uh, take, was fulfilling a very useful role in the progressive scheme of things. Yet at the same time, the creators, the founders of communism in the 19th century hated and scorned the small nations or little people. However, very many progressives rejected such selective and instrumental treatment of nationalism. For instance, very influential French progressive intellectuals were fascinated with uh, the abstract ideals of the rights of minorities and uh, the nationalism of so-called non-historic people which in the 19th century everywhere to a various degree was waking up from its historical slumber and it was busy forming its nationalist cadres. Only to a small degree, this sort of approach was institutionalized. Um, in the majority, In the majority of um, uh, cases, we're talking about a certain general attitude, about a certain influential sentiment, especially in the West. It emerged from the spirit of the time and ethics. First of all, crushing the little by the great, uh, appeared to most people as simply churlish and criminal. And secondly, people reflexively identified with the underdog who were under attack by the powerful ones. Hence the underdog was perceived to be always right in a moral sense. Thirdly, from this sort of thinking, there is only a step to recognize that the guarantee uh, of security for such little peoples is a, an international recognition of the doctrine of sovereignty. Thus, when World War I broke out, public opinion in allied countries would soon over the fate of the little of uh, little Belgium and little Serbia. They had fallen victims, after all, to um, the forces of evil, Berlin and Vienna. And they served as the main argument justifying uh, the entry of London, Paris, and P Petersburg into the conflict. The that that's why Russia, England, and France joined the fray, precisely to defend the little ones, the little nations. Very soon, the high and mighty, or at least the public opinion in those countries, would remember also about uh, poor Poland. This narrative was grounded in a a nearly universal recognition of nationalism and national consciousness as the most important marker 
of the dynamics of internal relations of nations as well as international relations. The crowning of this process was the emergence uh, of the consensus about self-determination of nations. Self-determination of nations. Meanwhile, uh, the wartime narrative about sovereignty acquired a hypocritical champion, Germany and its propaganda. The Germans began posing as defenders of little nations. The main aim of their offensive was naturally Russia. Berlin not only played the Polish card, but also the Lithuanian and Ukrainian cards, even though to a much lesser extent, Estonian, Latvian, and Belarusian cards. Further, the Second Reich encouraged the native Germanophile or nationalist protégés to invoke their case for independence. In, at one point, Berlin was surreptitiously behind the effort to petition US President Woodrow Wilson about uh, uh, self-determination of nation because the American uh, president was a, a great champion of it. And from the point of Berlin, it undermined Petersburg. Finally, uh, as early as November 1917, the German government officially came out of the closet as the great champion of um, national self-determination, in particular, as far as Lithuania and Kurland. During the negotiations, negotiations at Brest between December 1917 and March 1918, the Germans constantly invoked this rule, in particular as far as Ukraine is concerned. In its uh, allegedly supportive of little nations propaganda, only the Bolsheviks beat the Germans in their hypocrisy. Incidentally, the Bulgarians and others also invoked similar arguments about self-determination of nations to justify their territorial demands on their neighbors. More, one could discern that the Entente likewise began moving rhetorically and politically in that direction. Ultimately, under the influence of the United States, the narrative of self-determination, of national self-determination began to dominate in the negotiations in Paris following the victory in the war by the West. This uh, principle was written into the Versailles Treaty and all the other re related treaties. The concept of national sovereignty became soon the main point of reference in international relations. Self-determination of nations is propelled by nationalism. Without this, there is no impulse to admit, to uh, confirm, to believe that freedom or, or independence of a collectivity referred to as nation is a conditio sine qua non for such an entity to exist and prosper. Nation as an organization makes no sense without mass support for such an entity. 
nationalism is a collectivist ideology. Uh, it means organization of society according to the commonality of language, geographic area, culture, religion, and history. Nationalism reflects the belief that the commonality of tradition, institutions, and, and out of that, that out of commonality of tradition, institutions, and beliefs, there emerges certain possible to define commonality of interests. It is supposed to guarantee a harmonious internal development of nations, although it does not have to be the reason for any external conflict with a neighboring nation. A nationalist is a person who, to defend a, a national interest, mobilizes his or her nation socially, politically, and culturally. The less, the, the less participation of religion, the smaller the re religious ingredients and uh, the smaller the traditional ingredient in the life of the nation, the more extreme nationalism tends to be. The more one is convinced about threats to national interest, the more extreme nationalism becomes. Well, this is at least a definition of uh, um, modern nationalism. It uh, defines this ideology because uh, the ideology is an organizing principle for a modern nation. But the concept itself stems at least from antiquity. The Bible is our point of reference because God created tribes and nations. Then in um, medieval times in the West, there emerged a historical nation. So in say the Polish or Hungarian context, the knights, nobility. This sort of nation did not have ethnicity, but corporate rights and privileges. And this included corporate estate consciousness, regional consciousness, and a sort of a proto-national consciousness. This nation would identify itself by recognizing similar participants in the entire kingdom and also with the monarchy as the emanation and the symbol of the system. Because in the old Commonwealth of Poland, Lithuania, the nobility constituted at least 10% of the people, this sort of a proto-nationalist consciousness was extremely ubiquitous. Following the partitions of the Commonwealth by the end of the 18th century, it was principally the nobility and in the intelligentsia which derived largely from the nobility that maintained and treasured the tradition of freedom and independence. It was them who first and foremost cherished and kept national consciousness to a large extent by grounding themselves in the Catholic Church. At the end of the 19th century, two competing concepts of nationalism began to function in Poland. On the one hand, we have the modern nationalism, and on the other hand, we have the Jagiellonian nationalism. The first one, modern nationalism, grew out with 
from the second one, but it modernized it based upon sexy new theories streaming from the West. All that was fashionable was incorporated into the old nationalism. So modern nationalism is mostly identified with the national democratic movement. Its main theoreticians were Zygmunt Balicki, Jan Popławski, and Roman Dmowski. They gave a reality check to the romantic discourse of Polish nationalism by proposing national egoism and social Darwinism of the eternal uh, struggle among and between national organisms. It was them who took neutral organic work of the positivists and pushed it onto the active venue of political engagement, endowing the so-called work at the grassroots with nationalist dynamics. At the same time, the ENDEC, National Democratic Model, from the very beginning, gradually diluted the implications of the ideas of Charles Darwin and Herbert Spencer because it incorporated into the nationalist thought traditions which negated such progressive ideas. I'm in particular referring to the invocation of English conservatism and after a while, Christianity. Domowski borrowed from Edmund Burke the idea of little platoons where families anchored, um, where individuals anchored in families would join a very rich mosaic of local communities creating a nation. The index derived from this concept of national solidarity, which they juxtaposed to the socialist class struggle. From the Englishman, Dmowski also borrowed the concept of continuity within the nation of a relationship between the dead, the living, and the unborn members of uh, the national community, in his case, the Poles. The chain of community in a historical time became an acceptable form of egalitarianism in the context of the nation. Finally, the Endetsia turned to Catholicism, which it eventually equaled with um, Polishness. God and not nation became the highest point of reference for Polish nationalists. One also must remember that reality dictated that in the framework of the assimilated Polish historical traditions, the nationalists had to absorb also the Jagiellonian heritage. Because without that, without the legacy of multinational commonwealth, there was no way to speak about a national continuation. In practice, all of this meant that the index considered as Poles those who wanted to be Poles. Among the common people, they were limited to workers and peasants who happened to be Catholic and who derived mostly from uh, uh, ethnic Poland. Unfortunately, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Jews increasingly rejected Polish nationalism in 
the name of their own freshly awakened integral nationalisms. But the index, with no problem, embraced ethnographic tribes such as Kashubi, Mazuzi, or Silesians, as well as uh, uh, Slavic and Baltic people, including uh, the Ruthenians and Lithuanians, if those elected Polishness. Bendix also were very open to the peoples apparently alien, such as the, uh, the Armenians and others. The same concerned people of different religion, such as Muslim Tatars or Lutherans in um, Chechen Silesia, as well as elsewhere. Despite the fact that Index evolved a very uh, strong anti-Jewish program, but Jewish assimilators, uh, assimilators, in particular Christian converts, were welcomed so long as they expressed their uh, great desire to become Polish nationalists. In such uh, situations, Jewish roots didn't count at all. And this rule applied to a certain degree to Polish patriots of uh, Jewish origin in various others, non-nationalist Polish orientations. The further to the left, however, the more reluctance to bestow upon such people this privilege of Polishness. Because for the index, Polishness was foremostly a compliment, uh, a question of a, an honorific title and distinction. And thus, an emanation of a common Polish culture. It was not a question of race, blood, or ethnicity. Despite the modern coat paint, even among the so-called modern Poles of Domowski, there dominated to a large degree elements of continuity with the old Commonwealth. The main competitor, as far as nationalism, to the modern Polish nationalism was the Jagiellonian nationalism. One accepts, as far as periodization goes, is that the end of its ideological domination was the, the, the uh, crush of the Polish uprising of 1860. Three. Of course, there are scholars who claim that uh, even decades before intellectuals imagined themselves as separate and modern nations. Perhaps it was not so. At any rate, Jagiellonian nationalism functioned, continued to function in a generous, liberal, and paternalistic approach of a great part of the nobility and intelligentsia in the Cres, in the Intermarium, um, who perceived themselves as the Agelonian, as well as uh, perceived the Coronage or people from the crown, and their benevolence extended naturally to their own homeowners. The non-historic nations, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Lithuanian, or local. This, this could have been expressed by the slogan, uh, for your freedom and ours, 
but it didn't have to. Perhaps more often it was expressed by a general patriotism, uh, a nostalgia, a nostalgic patriotism for the first Commonwealth. It was the strongest perhaps in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and in Podolia before 1914. In its most conservative form, it expressed itself in a loyalist as far as the Tsar, and to a lesser extent, the Habsburg Emperor, an attitude known as native countryism or krajowość, kraj, my country. In the context of the intermarium in general and the old Commonwealth in particular, Viktor Sukhenitsky stresses that to properly define the word nation and nationality was by no means easy. Traditionally, they were understood in a political rather than ethnic sense. They were synonyms of citizenship, implying those enjoying political rights. In the, in the multiracial, multilingual, and multireligious area between the Russians and the Germans, the political meaning of the Latin word natio was especially emphasized. At the time of the Vienna Congress, there was no doubt that the old term natione polonus was much broader than gente polonus. In the second half of the 19th century, however, the word nation and nationality took on more ethical, ethnical than political character. As long as the word Polish was used in a broad political sense of a family surname, however, the Poles not only welcomed but took on an active part in the national renaissance of their brothers, the Lithuanians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians. The so-called Ruthenian or Ukrainian peasants became politically and nationally conscious and began to demand equal rights with the Poles. The formula used by the politically active Ukrainians in the old Commonwealth, Gente Rutenus Natione Polonus, became obsolete. The growing Ukrainian demands for the Rutenization replaced the Poles' former benevolent attitude toward the Ukrainian national renaissance. The former brothers became bitter political rivals, if not stubborn enemies. A similar pro process took place with the Belarusians, Lithuanians, Jews, and others vis-a-vis -vis the Poles. All of them, to the great chagrin, frustration, and ultimately anger of the Poles, rejected the traditional non-ethnic and non-racist definition of the nation and order of uh, things in the lands of the old Commonwealth. Most of them were looking for an alternative way of self-definition as well as self-organization in the context of the, political, the geopolitical and geocultural space of the intermarium. For some of them, and not, not only to the Jewish people, the answer was assimilation, in particular assimilation with the victorious cultures, the Russian or the German. For most, however, the nationalist paradigm hold. In its framework, in its framework, they were looking for a collective concept of existing in new realities. And nationalism for most of them was reflexively and automatically a negation of Polishness. And first and foremost, the Jagiellonian version of nationalism. The hatred blinded them to such a degree that, for instance, in January 1919, Lithuanian Christian Democrats preferred the tyranny of the Bolsheviks in Vilna over the government of the Commonwealth. 
of the Polish Republic, having rejected Jagiellonian nationalism and any tie to Polishness whatsoever, Polishness that would be either traditional or modern, folk nationalists referring to the Ukrainian, Belarusian, Lithuanian, or Jewish nations usually would turn to Western paradigms just like the modern poles of national democracy. However, unlike the Polish index, folk nationalists of other ethnoses very frequently, as a rule, ignored religious sources in their ideology. There was a further lack of conscious reference to conservative Anglo-Saxon inspirations, in particular to Edmund Burke. Aside from cruel social Darwinism, we also have borrowings from German romantic nationalism, as well as integral nationalism, plus socialist forms of collectivism. They were under the influence of blut and boden, the blood and soil notions, as well as the uh, folk ethnic movement, Volkische Bewegung. Further, it also uh, selectively embraced folk nationalism, also selectively embraced Marxism. This last development was an, a, an important element of their ideology because it allowed folk nationalists to marry uh, the elements of class struggle and ethnic struggle against the so-called Polish lords. Out of all this, integrism arose. It crystallized rather slowly and was fully articulated only after World War I. When we take the Ukrainian example, this hybrid was called active nationalism. Its basic rules were elaborated by a former socialist, Dmitry Gonsov. The, the idea of, uh, of uh, active nationalism was based on deification of nation and rejection of all traditional moral commandments as far as uh, serving the nation. There was no God, but one was supposed to worship the nation. This was a recipe for neo-paganism neo -paganism with all the implications. A, the shortest explication of this uh, nationalist neo folk nationalist neo paganism comes from Stepan Lenkowski's uh, Decalogue of Ukrainian Nationalists. Point one Thou shalt win the Ukrainian state, or thou shalt perish in the struggle for it. And then thou shalt not cringe and hesitate to execute and carry out the greatest crimes if the good of the cause dictates so. Hatred and trick must be used to meet the enemy of your nation. For the folk ethno-nationalists, 
the business was quite straightforward. His nation was the best as a homogeneous entity at many levels, linguistic, cultural, social, political, religious, and racial. An ethnic folk ethno-nationalist sang the pants of his own particularism, and then he would attack universalism. Sometimes he was capable of dressing his own separateness in particular and folkloristic symbols, as well as a variety of myths, which would be, however, written in the historical context deriving from um, uh, historical universalism, as was described earlier by uh, Viktor Sukhanitsky. For example, Vyas Gabriel Gulevichus, one of the contemporary liberal Lithuanian representatives of this option, claim the following. On the Lithuanian side, many of these values, ethical and moral concepts, were previously inarticulate, part of a seemingly self-evident way of life offered to, uh, referred to as Buddhas, but now were recast as constituent parts of national identity. Lithuanian Tfarka order, by contrast, did not have the same tie to state power as the German Ordnum. As was only natural for a peasant people who had not had an active role in government, the idea of Tfarka derived from the reality of the farm household. This can even be tra uh, traced to the word itself related to words for fencing and enclosure, as well as creation. Tferti. In the Lithuanian movement's first secret political manifesto from 1916, concepts of a unique culture consciousness were held up as homegrown order and alternative to an outside domination. The 1916 proclamation statement of the people's unique character and values now presented these as national consciousness. Significantly, it referred to the people as a tauta, an archaic Indo-European term. The common translation of, of tauta as a nation is an incomplete shorthand rendering missing its distinctive meaning. Nation locates identity in birth, natio. Tauta, however, is different, originally meaning troop, crowd, or a band of fighters. Indo-European tauta. The unifying principle here, in contrast to nation, is from the outset voluntaristic pointing to a common shared project defining the group. Let us look closer at this attempt to apologize for Lithuanian integral ethno-nationalism. This is a very sophisticated maneuver to infuse it with liberal and universalist elements. Its, integ in, its integralism is instrumentally hidden, pretending that it does not derive from the modern European nationalist ideology and that instead is completely sui generis. Further, this sort of nationalism illegitimately ascribes to itself an alleged universalism by partly invoking a rhetoric which is surreptitiously without attribution borrowed from the reactionary, reactionary Krajowcy, the countryman, uh, 
ideologues. But let me explain a few phenomena first. Before modern nationalism arose, there, exist, there existed long before historical nationalisms and proto-nationalism. It derives from the word natio. Natio means birth in Latin. So our continuation as people. First of all, that means children of God. Second, children of our mother and father belonging to a family, a clan, tribe, and nation. Third, individuals who inherited the legacy of our cultural milieu, social milieu, economic and political milieu. And fourth, us as a biological expression, us as genetic material. That's what natio means. Natio transformed through the culture, old French culture, as nation began, began to mean uh, the place of birth. And therefore, natio became synonymous, in a way, with the word patria, motherland, fatherland. In its um, medieval meaning, natio signaled a political nation, so chivalry and nobility. And therefore, for example, to natio hungarica, everyone who had political rights belonged his or her uh, political, I mean, ethnic background notwithstanding. In this sense, the term natio was also understood in the old Commonwealth. Therefore, Polish patriots or Jagiellonian nationalists invoked this not only the slogan free with free, equal with equal, or brother with brother, but also for your freedom and ours. This was a, a rule, a principle of equality of the nation, joined with consciousness of the existence of common laws, ethics, and culture, and not of um, uh, ethnic origins. In this way, for example, Lithuanian boyars would become Polish. Adam Mickiewicz, the great romantic poet, beautifully explained that the word Pole is our last name. It's the last name of every single one of us. And our first name can be a Ruthenian, a Lithuanian, a Tartar, a Jew, or anybody else. He wrote so in Księgi Narodu Polskiego i Piagrzymstwa Polskiego. How does Lithuanian or other uh, ethno-nationalism fit into this picture? Not at all. The word Tauta in Lithuania currently means nation or people. However, in its original archaic meaning meant a horde. So a wild bunch of uh, uh, riders setting out to conquer, rape, pillage, burn, and murder. Tauta was led by a leader. The leader, in exchange for absolute and blind loyalty, meted out the spoils of the war to his, to the members of his ord. In Tauta, there could be no talk about any voluntarism, about any choice. There was only blind obedience or death. 
or well, leaving the Tata or doing anything that the Tata didn't agree with. And this was at the heart of the power of the steppe people, for instance, the Mongols. Remembering such differences between universal nationalism and folk ethno-nationalism, folk ethno-nationalism, which is very particularist, let us look further at the arguments of uh, uh, the Lithuanian liberal nationalist author. Let us remember that he endeavors to garb ethno-nationalism in the vocabulary reflecting the sensitivities of contemporary times. In particular, let us pay attention to a very shrewd criticism by Yulievicius of the Marxist critics of nationalism, in particular, Eric Hobsbawm, Benedict Anderson, and Ernest Geller. He does so by invoking the liberal doctrine of free choice, as we saw in Tauta, there is no free choice, and historical folkloristic continuations of of Lithuanism. Lulievicius wrote as follows, since national identity was understood to be rooted not in birth or blood, but in common resolve, then shared consciousness had to provide the moving spirit underlined in nationalist exhortations to awareness and conscious commitment, as well as emphasis on education. Individual commitment was crucial because in these lands, national identity rested so much on personal decisions. In this Northern European crossroads of culture, ethnicity, language, religion, and history, there were many possible identifications for individuals to accept. Radical national movements founding intellectuals experienced this themselves in the preceding decades, arriving at avowals of Lithuanian identity in dramatic moments of personal conversion. This snapshot of the development of national identity caught in the moment of genesis in the 1916 secret proclamation of nationalist goals, illuminates the distinctive nature of the nationalist project here. The essential point is that this is that this was a deliberate project, aware of itself, creating images of the past and asserting continuities with the past Western scholarship uh, uh, with that past. Western scholarship has often treated nationalism under the rubric of false consciousness, stressing, artifice, and manipulation. This misses the dimension of awareness of the project. In fact, models of nationalism current in Western scholarship are stood on their heads in this case from the East, rather than imagined communities, communities or inventions of tradition the nationalist project produced here aware communities of imagination and deliberate traditions of invention. A conscious elaboration out of the precarious past, realizing one of many possible projects. Scholarly models of nationalism juxtaposing civil citizenship-based nationalism of uh, um, of the West with ethnic birth-based nationalism of the East are thus incomplete. Here, elective ethnicity, nationality, uh, nationality is a conscious choice and commitment to creative tradition was another significant variant. Let us know that this believer in Lithuanian ethno-nationalism very shrewdly attempts to explicate the essence of his own ideology by appropriating the essence of that which constituted the heart of the old, the, the, the national heart of the old Commonwealth, cultural choice and not an ethical one. Polishness in this sense, in this sense was not only a choice, but rather an ethos. Polishness is not eth- ethnical, it is ethical. 
ethos and not ethnos. Lithuanianism means support for self-definition of nationality in a very narrow sense of this word. Lithuanianism means exclusion. Everyone is, is uh, excluded who is not narrowly defined as a Lithuanian. Because the act of a narrow definition in itself is the rejection of the universalism of the old common law. The broad, generous embrace of everyone as a Pole was an act of universalist, nationalist, or universalist Jagiellonian nationalism. In this particular sense, Poland was understood everywhere and in particular in the Kresy, in the Intermarium. However, according to Viktor uh, Sukhenitsky, Lithuanian objective theory denied the individual a possibility of free choice of nationality or mother tongue. Integral Lithuanian nationalists denied or contradicted the fact that on the territories of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, people of Lithuanian or non-determined origin who spoke Polish and who pointed to the old Commonwealth as their own, as their, as their motherland. They denied that those people had the right to consider themselves as Poles in a historical sense or any other sense. At best, such people were considered lost sheep, and at worst, they were considered traitors. Further, the, cho uh, the choosing of Lithuanianism, in fact, concerned a very, a very narrow handful of integral intelligentsia, which mostly derived from the common people, but also in part from the landed nobility, which for centuries had been immersed in Polishness precisely in the sense of uh, the, the first Commonwealth. Those who wanted to be Lithuanians in a modern ethno-nationalist sense had to reject this heritage. As far as common people are concerned, those who spoke the Lithuanian language, we cannot talk here about their conscious choices. Instead, we see proselytization and uh, acquiring their loyalty in a variety of ways by Lithuanian ethno-nationalists. It was usually executed uh, by mobilizing the ethnic Lithuanian group in the opposition to Polishness primarily and in a rejection of the historical universalism of the Commonwealth because that one universalism was Polish and it threatened in modern, under the modern circumstances, a, a complete disappearance of the Lithuanian national, nationality or its conservation without a state on a folkloristic level. Therefore, folk ethno-nationalism Lithuanian folk ethno-nationalism had to 
strive to create a separate state and had to strive for a total separation from the past and so-called Polish universalism. Therefore, folk ethno-nationalists pushed for the transformation of folklore into nationalism, universalism into particularism, common history uh, into a selective legend. Thus, enmity towards Polishness, Poland, and the Poles. Of course, not only towards the Poles. The Lithuanian integrists, in fact, would list three enemies after 1915. Polish lords, Russian Bolsheviks, and German and Jewish speculators, merchants. Russian Bolsheviks were enemies primarily as nationally alien, as inheritors of the mantle of uh, the Moscovite partitioners, and competitors in revolutionary social radicalism in Lithuania. German and Jewish speculators, merchants, reflected prejudices triggered by fresh ex uh, war experiences, as well as historical imagination connected to the traditional social structure of the estates of the Grand Duchy. In this sense, listing German and Jewish speculators, merchants, meant both the rejection of uh, the system of economic exploitation during the German occupation, where perceptions dictated cooperation between Germans and Jews against the Lithuanian population, and the stance against the domination of the Jewish community as bourgeoisie, in particular in trade and other endeavors, who, according to eth uh, folk ethno-nationalists, should be under the control of non-existing or, or practically non-existing uh, Lithuanian middle class. But the Poles conveniently mentioned uh, in a national social form always remained a priority in a hierarchy of threats, or perhaps even more poignantly, a hierarchy of hatred. This was class and national hatred. Accordingly, Lithuanian laboring people, our uh, landless peasants, smallholders and estate laborers, all of them were promised the land taken from Polish landlords. This appeal set the tone, set the early tone for a pro-government agitation campaign that would continue with a growing vigor throughout the world according to a neo-Marxist Lithuanian histor historian, Thomas Balkelis. Similar processes concerned also ethno-nationalist, Belarusian, Ukrainian, Jewish, and others who came from a variety of people, of peoples in the Intermarium. Thank you very much. When we return, we'll see the implications of, uh, implications of this in the ideology of 
the concept of the self-determination of nations, according to President Wilson and dictator Vladimir Lenin. Till the next time, it's business as usual here at IWP. I would like to thank Dr. Hodakevich and all of you who tuned in. If you are interested in attending other upcoming events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you.